Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian at UConn Hartford and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. This episode is sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman. Find out more at bowman.legal and Connecticut Humanities, co-publisher of Connecticut Explored. I'm Walt Woodward. Twice in a long and distinguished career as state archaeologist, Nick Bellantoni was called upon under circumstances that had eerily similar spiritual beginnings to exhume for repatriation the skeletal remains of young native men who died long ago and far from home and family while in Connecticut. In this special two-part episode, based on his new Wesleyan Press book, The Long Journey's Home, The Repatriations of Henry Opuka Haia and Albert Afraid of Hawk, Bellantoni tells the stories of these two young men, one a native Hawaiian, the other a Lakota Sioux, and how helping return their remains to their families and homelands long after each had died proved to be the most moving experiences of his professional life. This is Walt Woodward. Today I'm at the Litchfield Historical Society with state archaeologist emeritus Nick Bellantoni. Nick and I go back a long way. He's one of my favorite people, and he has just written a really wonderful book. This is a powerful and a very interesting pair of stories. The title of the book is The Long Journey's Home. Nick, welcome to Grading the Nutmeg. Well, thank you so much, Walton. It's great to be with you again. Tell us about The Long Journey's Home. What's it a story of? It is the story of two repatriations of young Native men who died in the 19th century uh, in Connecticut and were buried here a long way from their homelands. One is Henry Opokahaia, who was a Native Hawaiian who came here around 1806 and would die in Cornwall, Connecticut while attending the foreign mission school to become a missionary to go back to Hawaii to convert his fellow Hawaiians to the Christian gospel. He died of typhus and was buried in Cornwall Cemetery. The other young native man was Albert Afraidahawk, who's on Ogala Lakota Sioux, who um, uh, was performing with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show in June of 1900 when he contracted food poisoning or botulism, and he died and was buried in an unmarked grave in Worcester Cemetery in Danbury. And in the late 20th and 21st centuries, descendant women had spiritual messages that both of these young men wanted to come home and started the repatriation effort. And as a state archaeologist, I was responsible for the disinterment and the forensic work to identify them. So in both of these cases, you were the person who actually was in charge of exhuming the body and repatriating the remains first back to Hawaii and then later to the uh, Lakota Sioux Reservation, right? That's exactly right. Basically, I had the responsibility of hopefully in a professional and respectful way to uh, disinter the bodies. Now, at this point, what we're talking about are skeletal remains. Uh, Albert was not in very good condition in terms of organic preservation, but we were able to remove him uh, for reburial and identification. And uh, Henry Opakahaia, who died in much earlier in 1818, uh, was in actually really good organic condition, but again, just skeletal remains that were allowed to be brought back and identified. Sure. And, this, and, and we were very satisfied that uh, um, that these remains forensically were these two native men 
uh, and welcome them back to their families. One of the things I found most interesting in the book is the parallel between the stories of the two men. But I think to make it easier for people to see these parallels, let's take them each one at a time. Sure. Tell us about Henry. He's a fascinating character. Henry had a fascinating life and uh, tra- uh, traumatic and, uh, life also. He was born uh, probably around 1792 in the Big Island, Hawaii, um, where he was born in a traditional family. Um, it was also a time, uh, this was after a generation, uh, excuse me, about a decade after James Cook had, had landed uh, at, uh, in Hawaii. So it was a time of great culture change. And James Cook, of course, was the first European or the first white person to, to land in Hawaii that we know of. That we know of. I mean, there, others could have very much have landed there. But Cook's contribution, I suppose, is that he made the Western world aware that Hawaii existed. And, of course, he would be killed on, at Kilikekua Bay. Um, what was going on was a time of great culture change. There was a lot of deaths going on in Hawaii because of you know, the massive diseases that were brought in with Cook's crew and others that were now landing there. Um, And with all of that, there were political changes with uh, Kamehameha the Great, who wanted to consolidate all of these island chieftains under his one rule. And the story goes that uh, he invaded uh, Henry's village. Henry is a 10-year-old boy at the time. His father is a warrior against Kamehameha, protecting the village from being taken. And when he sees that the, it's too late, that the, 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 the battle is being lost, he goes into the, the village, he gets his wife and his two sons, an infant boy and Opakahaia, who again is about 10 years old. They flee to the highlands, they flee into the vegetation um, and, and kind of live for a few days in a, a lava tube uh, before they are caught. And when they are caught, Kamehameha's warriors literally hacked uh, Opokahia's parents, decapitating them. It, the blood spurted on him. His yeah. parents' blood uh, covered him. He, whether it's a shock or, or a need for survival, he grabs his infant brother, throws him on his back, and flees. And one of the warriors, um, hit their um, sword, impales his brother to him, killing his brother, uh, wounding Henry, knocking him down. This very violent war that he is witness to and involved in through no fault of his own, that's an internal Hawaiian political struggle. That's exactly right. So, I mean, it's been affected by the arrival of Cook and European diseases that have destabilized the culture and the populations. But this is native against native warfare, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, The only difference is that uh, uh, Kamehameha was really good about trading with Europeans and Americans for weapons that he was able to now use to conquer the islands. He was using steel, yeah. uh, you know, that was not available to, uh, to, to many of the others. No, it was, it was competition against chiefs, and he wanted the whole... He wanted to consolidate power on all exactly. the islands. Exactly. So he's traumatized. He's actually... Uh, Henry is traumatized. Henry is traumatized. Yeah. He, 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 he is taken captive. He's 10 years old. He's not a threat. And he has to live with the warrior that murdered his parents. He lives with them for two years. And the survivor's guilt that he must have had, the despondency. Uh, eventually, the story goes, he is discovered by an uncle of his, his mother's brother, who is a, a, a high kahuna or priest at Kilikikua Bay. He's able to get Henry's freedom 
and take him. And Henry now becomes um, a, a, a tutored. He, he learns all of the, the genealogies of the Hawaiians, the mythologies, the stories, and he learns how to become a priest. So a kahuna is like a priest and the carrier of the oral tradition combination, they, religious man, wise man, historian, right? Exactly, and, 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 and even more so, he, they were, uh, the, the kahunas were uh, not only, uh, they weren't political, but they told people and the chiefs when they can go to war, when not to go to war, when to fish, when not to fish. They could also create kapu, which were kind of do's and don'ts that would uh, upset or defy the, 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 the gods and the spirits. And so they're very powerful. And Henry is being groomed for this. To become one of these. To become yeah. one of these uh, within the system. And he's a very intelligent young man, uh, clearly. Um, but he just decides that he wants to leave. He wants to get away um, whether he was survivor's guilt trying to outrun uh, his despondency or, or whether he's in search of something. But all he needs to know is he needs to leave, and he would eventually leave aboard uh, an American sailing vessel, uh, the Triumph, that was part of the, the China trade. And he, he, he literally stowed away on board the ship, right? Yeah, well, his, uh, uh, Captain Brittanel of the, of the Triumph uh, would not allow him to come on board and sail with them unless he had his family permission. And his uncle, of course, would not let him go because he was studying to be a priest. So he plans to stow away, but he is caught before they leave, and eventually his uncle concedes and allows him to take off on this voyage, knowing, I'm sure, that he'll never see him again. So he comes to New York first, where the... uh, um, And he's come of his own free will, but in a way he's fleeing. As you tell the story, he's fleeing his kind of own personal trauma at having witnessed so much family bloodshed and carnage. But he also, he's coming in search of something, right? I I believe so. He's he's, uh, he's probably escaping something, but also searching for something and not knowing exactly what that was all about. Um, So he ends up in, of all places... Cornwall, Connecticut. How'd this happen? Well, basically, the Triumph came back to uh, New York, and once they sold their goods from China, at very good profits, by the way, they, uh, the captain, Brunel, Brunel, was from New Haven. So he took Henry and another Hawaiian uh, with him. Uh, they really lives now in New Haven. And um, he um, starts to adapt to Euro-American society uh, in the early 19th century, and he, he craves education. One story goes that he's crying at Yale, the steps of Yale College, is asked by a gentleman by the name of Edwin Dwight, why are you crying? And he says, no one will teach me. And so Edwin takes him on uh, to tutor him uh, in terms of English and using, of course, the Bible as, as, a, as a primer. He would eventually move into the household of um, Timothy Dwight. Reverend Dwight was the president, president. of Yale College. Yeah. And, um, you know, really one of the lights of the Second Great Awakening. So um, he, he really is involved in this kind of a, a more of a religious family. Um, he doesn't take to this new religion very well. He, he doesn't embrace it. He doesn't embrace it at all. There was a concern that, you know, because there was confusion uh, in New, new England society about these Polynesians. Well, yeah, he is a brown-skinned man in a very white-oriented culture. So he's a, you know, a figure automatically of some racial skepticism, if not just outright racism. That's absolutely true. And, you know, he came into these families, these New England families, as servants. That's how they treated them. But, 
you know, they weren't slaves, they were servants, but there was always this fear because of New Haven uh, and the slave uh, trade and things was going on. There was always the fear that he would be kidnapped into the slave trade. One of the protective motives was to get Henry out of New Haven and into the interior of the state, and he goes to live with... Um, um, the Reverend Samuel Mills uh, and his family up in Torringford. Which is now Torrington, right? It, it's a part of Torrington. Yeah. That's exactly right, Torrington, Connecticut. It's up there that another Christian family, including Samuel Mills Jr., part of the, the Brethren movement uh, of, uh, of the Second Great Awakening to reach out to indigenous peoples around the world. The concern was all these people are going to hell. They're going to suffer hell because they never knew the word of Christ. And so the Mills family is convinced that Henry is brought there out of divine intervention because he is going to be the source of a missionary movement. So Mills independently has this revelation or whatever that indigenous people around the world need Christ. And then Henry shows up. Is that pretty much how it works? Or That's exactly right. It's, uh, the timing is really, um, is, is really incredible. But of course, like I mentioned, Henry doesn't accept this stuff yet. And uh, you know, he listens and, and, and he learns, but... It's not an emotional involvement. One thing that does come clear, though, in your book about Henry is that people like him. He's a charismatic guy. He may not be all excited about becoming a Christian missionary, but you like his company. Yeah. And that's, that seems to be universal. He, he, he's referred to as having a great sense of humor. He evidently, he has a powers, if you will, talents of mimicking, and he can imitate how people walk and talk, and, and you know, he was quite charming. And, uh, um, and I think, you know, maybe also because I think, you know, uh, Polynesian, this man of color, you know, they don't have, like, high hopes for this kid that, you know, he's going to be backwards and he's going to be slow and he's not intelligent. And then they find out he's charming. So he exceeds expectations. Yes, he, more, yes exactly. He exceeds that expectation. They, they warm up to this guy. He, he develops a lot of friends at, at Yale College. Well, he has this revelation, I like to say, in, in, in when he's working the farm up in... Um, up in Torringford with the Reverend Mills family. He, he has this feeling come over him. He almost thinks he's, he's, he's dying. He doesn't know what's going on. He's sick. And he's in the middle of the field, and uh, he says to himself, you know, what will happen if I die today? You know, uh, what will be my soul? Will I? And he hears a voice that says, why cumbereth it the ground? I'm not sure I understand what yeah. that means, but he is driven to his knees. Uh, and for the next two or three days, he's stays to himself. He avoids, people are saying, what's wrong with you? You're so melancholy. What's wrong with you? And he just wants to sort things out in his mind. And when he does, he, he is convinced that um, he's being called by Christ. And so he now devotes himself to the Bible, to learning scripture. Um, he now um, believes in the Christian God. So much so, and he was so intelligent that in his learning process, at this time, he now goes through a creative spurt. He, he, tra he starts to develop a phonetic uh, alphabet of a Hawaiian language, and he actually starts to translate the book of Genesis. His whole goal was to translate the whole Bible. And that becomes foundational for what happens next, right? It almost seems, this may not be factually true, but it almost seems as if they create the foreign mission school around Henry. He is the driving impetus. There's no question about it. The foreign mission school was really created, I like to think, because of Henry Opakai and others. It's, it's a part of that second great awakening. And, and the, the thought was to create and educate young Native men, and we're talking Native Americans, Africans, 
Polynesians to educate them to learn the Bible so they can go back and convert their fellow uh, peoples to the gospel with help from you know, European American Christians, Christian missionaries, but that they could bring the word back. Uh, the big issue at the time is that many, uh, the New England uh, congregation didn't know whether native peoples had the intellectual capacity to even understand the Bible, to even understand Christianity, let alone teach it. And so people didn't donate money to this because they were cautious. Like, you know, why put money into this when they're not capable? So he's proof of concept, right? He, he, he absolutely changes minds. He, he goes on a tour of New England to congregational churches, and he speaks about his conversion. He speaks about uh, uh, the Bible. He, he, he is intelligent. He, he speaks well. He's humorous. Um, and um, people are convinced from the charm of Henry Opakaya and his intellect that this could be a success. And they start donating money from all over New England to this foreign mission school, which began uh, in Cornwall, Connecticut. Why Cornwall? Well, Cornwall was, uh, actually there were a number of towns that wanted the foreign mission school. They were in little competition for this uh, within the, the congregational community. And um, Cornwall put up some money, from the, gave land, mm-hmm. and the use of a school that already existed uh, for this. Um, and Cornwall was kind of important in the sense that it was away from big city life with the temptations that these boys might have there and the good virtues of Protestant, uh, Protestant work. Well, it's a little, it's a, it's a, you know, very industrious early American farm village, right? And part of the education was working out in the fields. That's exactly right. The boys were required while they were at the school to work two days a week in uh uh, in the fields, in, in doing the agriculture, bringing produce in and selling it and so forth. So, no, that was considered part of the education as law, as well as with arithmetic and Greek. And he even learned Hebrew. I mean, he, he it was quite a strenuous uh, curriculum for these boys. Uh, and Henry was the star student. And And what other students were there? Were there other Hawaiians? There were about four at the time the mission school started. There were about four other Hawaiians uh, with Henry, uh, as well as uh, Native Americans, Cherokees, and, uh, and and a couple of Africans. So um, it's an amazingly cosmopolitan school in the middle of the Litchfield Hills. Yeah, diversity. You know? So what year did this start? The the the, the school uh, began in um, um, 1817, which just marked its 200th anniversary. Sure, uh, it only lasted until 1826 uh, when it all fell apart. But um, he was the first student, in and he was the star pupil. He was no the question star pupil, about it. No question about it. Unfortunately, in, in the winter of um, um, uh, 1818, he, he contracts typhus fever. And by February, he dies. And he dies an absolute Christian death. Um, it, when he is uh, you know, on, the, on his deathbed, knowing that the end would come, um, he puts his complete faith into God uh, and that Jesus will do what's right for him. And he does say to his fellow Hawaiians who are gathered around him that, oh, how I want to see Hawaii, that I, wa- I do want to go back. But God knows what's best, and God will do what's best. And, you know, he wanted to go back. He wanted to go back uh, to bring the word of God, to, to be a missionary. To... How do we know so many details about his life? I mean, he's, he is a brown-skinned man in a white society. He, you know, he's not the kind of person you would expect people to be writing about. Is it this kind of star pupil quality that makes him so important? He, he it was so unique uh, to New England society then. 
he was a celebrity. I don't know how else to say it, yeah. but he really was a celebrity. He went, to, you know, all over and preaching and talking, and people were just swooned by this guy. And um, when he died, such a tragic death, so young, bef- uh, around 26 years of age, before he could go back and fulfill his his his, his wishes, uh, I think it had a huge impact on the whole, cor- not only Cornwall but all of New England. Edwin Dwight, who originally was his tutor compiles what he calls the memoirs of Henry Opokai as a small little book. It takes in Henry's diary, uh, letters from the congregational community of people that knew Henry and so forth, and it tells Henry's story that he told of uh, his life in Hawaii. That's why we know so much about his life in Hawaii. So posthumously, a year after he dies, the book is published. It's a small little pamphlet of a book, but it was a bestseller. It was converted into three different languages, and the proceeds of that book went to the foreign mission school. You know, Mark Twain, and he tells of being uh, in Sunday school and hearing the story of Henry Wapakaya and making him cry at the sadness of his death. Wow. Uh-huh. And uh, and then when he goes to Hawaii, which she tells in, in uh, Roughing It, he uh, he talks about going to Kealakekua Bay and other places that Henry was at. How interesting. Mark Twain did that. Mark Twain. I mean, uh, you know, Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, Today, before we came here, we went to Henry's grave or his grave in Connecticut, which was the place where you exhumed his body before shipping it back. It's a beautiful setting. It's on a hill kind of elaborate gravestone. Clearly, they spared no expense in seeing that his resting place here was a very fine one. It was the largest monument in Cornwall Cemetery at at its time. And, um, you know, instead of this vertical tombstone that we all expected, you know, this is a stone table. Um, And those were only reserved for ministers and very prominent people within the community. Not everybody got one. So for this young man of color, to have a, a stone monument is extraordinary, and, and really, in, in many respects, uh, uh, speaks of the love that, uh, and the friends he had. Uh, people were grieved when they heard he died, but they tell the story that when he died, when the, and they all came rushing into the room, that he had a smile on his face that was just uh, um, a, a brilliant smile in death. And um, I like to think, it, you know, he taught New England Christians how to die a Christian yeah. death. Yeah. And that's why he became really the martyr for the, for the Protestant missions. And after death, there is, a, uh, there is a very large New England missionary contingent to Hawaii, right? And it's his experience. He is both the martyr and the icon of this movement in a lot of ways. That's exactly right. So 175 years later... You're an archaeologist starting out in Connecticut. You get a phone call. You get a phone call from a local funeral director who tells me the story that he is being contracted to remove the, the remains of Henry Opokahaia from Cornwall Cemetery for repatriation back to his family uh, on the big island of Hawaii. Right. Going through the legal channels, he yeah. was told, you, you need to have an archaeologist do yeah. this, and, and they advised him, contact a state archaeologist. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and that's, of course, when I got involved. In well, tell us again how the funeral director in Hartford had been contacted. What was the impetus for this? It was that dream, right? Ah. Well, this goes back to the family now. And uh, earlier that year, 1992, 
It turns out that a seventh generation descendant, a cousin of Henry Opokahaya, a young woman at the time by the name of uh, uh, Deborah Lilla Kapeka Lee, is in Seattle, Washington, and she wakes up in the middle of the night with this, this rush, this feeling. She thought she was sick, and she wasn't sure what was happening to her body, but she felt this inner rush, uh, uh, shortness of breath, and she grabs her Bible for, for, for comfort, you know, trying to see if she can get over what, what's happening. Um, and then she said this feeling welled inside of her and she heard five words spoken as clearly as I'm speaking to you and the five words were he wants to come home and she recognized right away that he is Henry her ancestor and that um, he's telling her he wants to come home so she took the responsibility at that point of um, organizing the repatriation of the spirit vision that she had. What did you think when you heard that? Well, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it, um, and um, other than it's an interesting story. It really wasn't until I met Deborah uh, and uh, developed a relationship and heard her telling the story. It's very moving, and um, um, what happened to her is as real as you and I are, are, are facing each other here doing this interview. Um, and the way she tells it, um, it, it was an absolute moving, probably the most moving experience of her life. And she felt the responsibility. This is my role now to bring him home. And it wasn't easy. Uh, so there was a lot uh, it was a lot to getting this done and coordinating it. And she was the project manager. She, she felt this was her, she had a calling. She was called to do this. And she had to do this. And you know, when you when you when you, you know when you hear her tell the story, it is very moving, and you believe that you know this calling was a special gift. At the end of the day, you are the point man. You're the guy at the end of the trowel when the exhumation happens. Tell us about that day and what it feels like to be inside a burial vault exhuming someone, especially someone you now know so much about. That's right, and that's what really made this kind of special is the fact that you know we, we deal with a number of uh, you know accidental discoveries of burials, in the, so that we're dealing with people we don't even know who they are, but you know we we do the research, the forensic work to learn in the history, to learn as much as we can about them. But I already had known his story, I read his story, and I and his powerful influence. Uh, when I first discovered uh, a piece of soil that dislodged, it was about the size of a fifty-cent piece, and when I looked at it, I could see the curvature of the. Form. Forehead, and I knew he was there. Uh, and then, of course, worked him with a brush to clear away some of the soil. And so but, forth. of course, in Connecticut, whenever you're exhuming a grave, there's usually the odds are that you're not going to find anything, right? Because that, the soil is so acidic in Connecticut. That's exactly right. We have such acidic soils. Organic remains do not do very well. And organic remains disappear fairly quickly, depending, on, again, on, on microenvironmental conditions. But exactly, I didn't know whether he would even be there. But when I saw that first portion of the forehead, I realized he not only is he here, He's in excellent organic condition, I could tell right away. And so clean, so as I'm, I'm starting to work it, I realize that, you know, uh, in a few minutes, uh, I'm going to be the first person to look on the facial structure of Henry Opokaia in, uh, in 175 years. And, you know, all this man met. And what he mean, meant, not only historically, but what he means to his family today. So uh, I, I can't... You know, you've, I mean, you, this is precise work, and you've got to do it oh, yeah. as a scientist, <laughs> but the, the emotions that, that, that must have been kind of tugging at you while you're trying to keep your cool and do the scientific job, it you're, must have been you're, something. You're always aware that you're a human being uh, 
working on the remains of another human being. Yeah. So you try to be as respectful as possible. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you want to do that, but you also want to be professional in the sense that you got a job to do and you got to get this done and you got to do this you know, for the family. And I wanted to do a great job for the family. Now, were there representatives from the family there when you did the exhumation? No, they hadn't arrived in, uh, yet from Hawaii, but uh, there was representative, uh, the family had uh, Reverend um, Carmen Wooster from the Congregational Church who represented the family uh, and a couple of others. Uh, but uh, the family, Debbie and her parents and others had not been able to arrive to last. They always regretted that they never got there in time and yeah. I kind of feel bad about it too, but uh, um, it would have been even more powerful if they were there. But, you know, uh, I just wanted to do the best job I could. So, you, you know, you've got to focus too, you know? Yeah. The combination of precision and reverence with which you remove the bodies, each of the parts, very carefully manage their handling, but at the same time, respectfully do the science of trying to make sure, I think this is who I think it is, but how do we know, right? That's right, and uh, you know, the Native peoples do not like us to use DNA, for, <clears throat> excuse me, because of, um, you know, it requires the destruction of the bone, even though it's a small, it's still destruction, and so what ends up happening is that we have to, to use gross morphology what we know of the history of this man, and what do we see forensically in the biology of this skeleton, and do they match up? And of course, in this case, it did. So yeah, there's a professionalism, a scientific end of it, but you wanna do it, you know, you do it with, with um, um, the family in mind. Now, in your book, there are engravings of Henry Obukaya, and they're, you know, they're pretty detailed. Could you tell when you first saw the facial skeleton? Did it match what you anticipated you would see? Well, yeah, and in many respects. I think, um, you know, the structure of, of, of his mandible uh, and um, the nose, the nasal bone. Now, we've got no soft tissue to work with. Sure. We're looking at a skeleton. But you could see the skeletal structure was not inconsistent with what we had seen. The problem, however, with these images of Henry, um, most of them were done after he died and as part of the, the memoir booklet. And if you look at later printings, he gets more anglicized. Got it. So, yeah, so. <laughs> you know, he gets less Polynesian looking as this. <laughs> Though there is a really interesting thing when a human being becomes an icon for anything. <laughs> you know, the, the, the legend quickly, it seems like, takes over the person and they become larger than life in a whole lot of ways. Before photography. And so yeah. you're, you're, but, you know, it was, it was it. And when we did the forensics, there was no question in our minds uh, for, from what we were able to do, working with uh, Dr. Michael Park, uh, that this was, in fact, Henry Opokaia, and we could send him back to his family. So how did he get back to Hawaii? Well, basically, his family came, uh, Debbie Lee and her parents, and, and uh, at least about seven or eight cousins all came to Cornwall. We had a, a going home ceremony at the uh, Cornwall Congregational Church. We were honored, along with some of the other m members of my uh, crew, as pallbearers, who carried Henry's coffin out. There was a ceremony, congregational ceremony, uh, and then he flew back to Hawaii with the family escorting him uh, back to uh, Honolulu. And for uh, about four or five days in Honolulu, he went to various places where their churches held uh, ceremonies and there was public viewing. Uh, and then eventually he would be flown to the big island of Hawaii. He would make, a, 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 if you will, a, a, a counterclockwise tour of Hawaii going uh, all around from Hilo and 
uh, Kuna, uh, eventually uh, to Kilikikua Bay where he was reburied. Debbie also in, uh, had, um, when he arrived back to the Big Island, she had an outrigger canoe with the uh, canoe club there to um, sail Henry's remains back into Kilikakua Bay to simulate his swim out. Well, and one of the wonderful stories is that, uh, like, eighth, sixth or seventh or eighth generation cousin actually jumps into the water out of the canoe carrying him and swims ashore to to emulate in reverse when Henry jumped into the water and sailed out to the triumph, right? That's exactly uh, right, and that, and that was very moving. That was one of those places in the book where I got yeah, choked he, up. Yeah, uh, that, that, uh, the canoes, the outriggers come in with the coffin, and, uh, and he, uh, hit, by the way, his name was Henry too, a namesake of Opokahia, and he comes out of the water replicating that um, that swim and, out and swim back. It and I just, must, just perfect. One of the, one of the things I really like about the way you tell the story is that you provide enough context that we understand. We we inescapably we understand the family dimensions of the story, but we also realize because you've recounted in you know very interesting ways Hawaiian history enough that we understand why Henry's homecoming is a, for the Hawaiian people, it's an important, iconic event. And I think you, the way he was treated on his return home reflects that. But that, when people read the book, they'll understand this. It's yeah, a, I, you're absolutely right. It, um, you know, they welcomed him as a, a, a son who's coming home. And um, the, the honors for about two weeks were just tremendous in, in bringing, having him come back. It had, had to be very moving for the family. So, okay, here you are, this young archaeologist. You've been asked to participate in an event that clearly is like a once-in-a-lifetime thing. You go along the next 20 years or so, and you're a state archaeologist, and you do, you know, you, you become a legendary state archaeologist, <laughs> and everyone loves you, and you do terrific <laughs> things. But there probably wasn't an experience that, you know, had fully matched the dimensions of that in that time. That's exactly right. That always stood out as the most special project I had ever been involved with. But then, 20 years later, the phone rings again, right? Coming up in part two, Nick tells the story of his involvement in the exhumation and repatriation of Albert Afraid of Hawk, a Lakota Sioux who died while traveling with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show in Danbury in 1900. And he reflects on the powerful meaning of both these repatriations as a measure of his life's work. This episode was sponsored by attorney Peter Bowman, helping the seriously injured and holding distracted drivers accountable for their actions. More at Bowman.legal and Connecticut Humanities, co-publisher of Connecticut Explored.